welcome to Attune, an audio narrative anthology brought to you by the Yale Daily News. In order to stay in tune with others, we bring you compelling narratives about the everyday and the extraordinary, stories of human interaction and relationships. In this series, you'll hear student-produced short stories, plays, and poetry, as well as voice talent and original soundtracks by both Yale students and alumni. Whether you're listening on a drive or in quarantine, while making dinner or taking a walk, by yourself or with friends, we hope this collection of stories brings everyone a little closer together. Today, you'll be hearing three short stories. The first is titled The Jaguar. It was written by Griffin Berlin and is read by Camila Ledesma. In it, you'll hear original music composed by Michael Gantz. For those who would like to follow along as they listen, there is a link in the episode description to all the written work included. In this short story, over the course of ten days, a woman adjusts to the unexpected and unwelcome visitor who appears in her home one night. Maeve has a theory that it only takes 10 days for anyone to get used to a change. A week is a long time. Add three days, she thinks, and you could adjust to almost anything. On Friday, the first day, Maeve gets home and she can't tell at first that anything is different. She hoists the grocery bags under her arm and shoulders open the front door to the house where she lives alone where she had lived alone. She steps into the house. It's quiet. She goes into the kitchen, turning on the lights. It's only after she's put the groceries away that she cocks her head slightly, measuring her breathing, listening. She doesn't know what made her stop, but something felt different. Something is different. She waits, frozen. Then, there, a noise from the floor above, a floorboard creaking and a few faint but unmistakable footsteps. Someone is in her house. She slowly opens a drawer and pulls out a small paring knife. Her mind is racing. She lives alone, has always lived alone here, so someone else must be in the house. And if that's the case, if she has to fight or run or scream, she's ready. She doesn't want to stab anyone. She tells herself that a small knife would somehow make it better if it came to that. To actually plunge the point of a knife into flesh, to rip the skin and tear the meat underneath, free the blood. She thinks it would be easier to bear if the wound were smaller. So she takes the knife with her as she creeps out of the kitchen, across the living room towards the stairs. She keeps her breathing slow, as quiet as possible. Her heart is pounding in her ears. It's louder than her breath and she curses her body's betrayal. How stupid would it be if she died because her heart was beating too loud? If someone were able to steal up on her, slit her throat, 
all because the only thing she could hear was the rushing noise of her own blood. She gets to the base of the stairs, puts a foot on the first step, and peers upward into the darkness. There is a jaguar at the top of the stairs, looking down on her. It's sitting with its back haunches pulled all the way to its front legs, its neck extended regally, head drawn up to its full height. It almost looks like a statue, and at first that's what Maeve thinks it is. But then she sees its tail, which is curled, resting on its front paws. Slowly, lazily, the very end is twitching. The cat's eyes are the burnished color of copper. And the moment Maeve looks into them, she freezes. Her mind goes blank. She can't look away. The jaguar holds her gaze. They stand that way, the two of them, until the jaguar leisurely extends its tongue and licks its nose. Underneath the dappled pink, Maeve sees two sharp incisors, thick as her fingers and sharp as sickles, glowing white in the dark at the top of the stairs. She moves her foot off the first step. When the cat doesn't react, begins backing slowly away. The cat doesn't move as she steps farther back. The last thing she can see are its feet, the tail still curled contentedly around them. Even when she can't see the jaguar anymore, she still walks backwards, not daring to turn around. She maneuvers into the hallway until her back hits the front door. Her hand scrabbles behind her until she grasps the handle. Maeve doesn't open the door. She thinks about it, but is afraid that if she does, the animal will come charging down the stairs with furious energy, like a bird of prey thrust into the air. She stands there, pressing her back against the wood, and she realizes that she's been hunched over only as she forces her spine straight. She's still clutching the paring knife, her hands squeezed so tight that her knuckles have turned red, and her nails have left crescents of white in her palm. She stays where she is. She thinks about going to one of her neighbors, or driving to a friend's, but as she thinks and does not move, the sun continues to sink lower. It becomes easier and easier, it seems, to do nothing. The shadows in the front hall grow longer, until Maeve is standing in the dark, illuminated only by the glow of the kitchen light down the hall. It seems ages ago that she turned it on. That first night, Maeve sits slumped on the toilet of the small bathroom off the kitchen, with the door locked. She doesn't really sleep, jolting awake every time she thinks she hears a board creak or spring squeak above her. The second day is Saturday, so she stays holed up in the bathroom. She leaves exactly three times. The first time, she just looks, her head poking out around the kitchen door. The second time, she gets a cup of water and some cheese, which she chews silently over the sink. 
The third time, she ventures into the living room to grab the book she's reading, left on the couch two nights earlier. She needs something to distract herself, to slow her mind's reeling and help her forget the large predator one floor above her. The third day, she makes herself a real dinner in the kitchen, quietly, paring knife always in her field of vision. As she eats, she thinks about feeding the cat. It might get hungry if she doesn't, she worries, and then it might finally come downstairs. But Maeve has no idea what jaguars eat. She looks it up. Apparently, jaguars eat deer. But Maeve thinks of buying all that raw meat, of bringing it home wrapped up, the blood slowly congealing in the plastic bags in the back of her car as she drives home from the butchers, or wherever it is you buy deer meat, of taking the meat into her house, of having to look at the parcels of death, each crossed by a web of veins, still raw and red every time she opens her freezer, of having to heave heaps of cold flesh up the stairs, of having to wait as it warms up and the smell, rancid and heavy, spreads through the house before the cat decides to eat it. The whole thing makes Maeve gag. She stops thinking about it. On Monday, the fourth day, Maeve gets up early. She's still sleeping in the downstairs bathroom, which doesn't have a shower. She feels gross. So she goes to her gym as soon as it opens and showers there. She also needs to get the change of clothes she keeps in her locker. Everything else she owns is upstairs in her bedroom, where the jaguar is. On her drive to the bank where she works, she thinks about telling someone there about the creature in her house. But what would she say? And who would believe her? And if they asked her what she did about it, she can't imagine explaining that she trapped herself in her bathroom all weekend and did nothing. Besides, she tells herself, when she goes home after work, maybe the cat will be gone. It's not. The first thing she does when she gets back to the house is to stand at the base of the stairs and look up. She can't see the jaguar, but she can hear something. Measured, steady breathing from the bedroom at the top of the stairs. She imagines the cat curled up on the guest bed, its mottled coat blending into the checkered pattern of the duvet, its weight creating a large depression in the cheap mattress, sleeping peacefully. That night, the fourth, she doesn't lock the door to the kitchen bathroom, leaving the knife next to the sink, though still within reach. On the fifth day, she goes shopping after work, buying a handful of outfits to last her through the week. She rearranges the pantry, putting newly folded shirts and jeans where she used to have pasta and rice. She gets through the week by falling into a routine. Gym, shower, work, home, dinner, reading, sleep. Not too unusual on paper. On Wednesday, when she gets home and looks up the stairs, she swears she sees its tail whip around the corner, out of sight. 
Her heart starts racing. She stays at the base of the stairs for longer than usual, both hopeful that she'll catch another glimpse of the beast and completely terrified by the thought of seeing it. She's slept sitting on the toilet all week. No matter how many blankets she piles on the lid, it is not a comfortable place to sleep. At the end of the week, on the eighth night, Maeve decides to treat herself. It's been a week since the jaguar arrived, and with every evening the beast doesn't come downstairs, every morning that Maeve wakes up alive and okay, she relaxes just a little bit. So she decides to try sleeping on the couch in the living room. She doesn't actually sleep much that night. She lies in the dark, staring towards the staircase until she starts to see shapes in the shadows. She clutches the knife close to her chest underneath the blanket she's pulled up to her chin. But the next night, she's on the couch again, and this time she sleeps, though lightly. By the tenth, the couch has become her bed. Those days, the ninth and the tenth, Saturday and Sunday, Maeve tries to spend as much time as possible out of the house. She goes to the beach, which she hasn't done in years, and basks her tired body in the sun. She stays at the library for hours, reading whole books in one sitting, enjoying the smell of her childhood. She meanders at a farmer's market, talking to vendors and taking time to savor the fruit she buys. Even out of the house, her mind wanders to the jaguar. She doesn't know what it's eating or drinking, how it's still alive. She figures it must go out during the day, or maybe at night, to hunt. She can picture it slinking past the couch as she sleeps, sliding out the front door, and slipping back up the stairs just before she wakes up each day, smooth and silent as water. She doesn't know if it's destroyed the upstairs of her house, if it's shredded the beds and pissed on the carpets. Maybe it brings back the carcasses of its prey, and the rooms are now bloodstained and littered with the bones of animals. She doesn't know why the jaguar is there, or if it will ever leave. She starts to tell herself that maybe she doesn't care. The second week passes, then the third, and soon a month has gone by since the jaguar first arrived. Maeve doesn't see the cat again, though she continues to check the stairs almost every day when she gets home from work. She knows it's still up there, though she never so much as sets foot on the staircase. She wouldn't dare. Some mornings, when she wakes up, she almost forgets that the jaguar is in the house. Sometimes she doesn't remember until she's already halfway to work. And sometimes, when it's warm and bright and the sun is so high in the sky you could almost forget that it has to set, she even laughs to herself. It's almost funny, really, that she lives with a jaguar. She can live like this, she tells herself until sooner or later she'll wake up and go a whole day without thinking about the jaguar. She'll come home and go to bed, 
and not once think that the upstairs of her house is anything more than a place she does not go. Our next story is entitled Moving Pains. It was written and is read by Rachel Calcott. In it, you'll hear original music composed by Sharon Ahn. Turn your thoughts to a northbound train and a passenger's musings on life beyond the window. The train north moves so fast that every view is a snapshot, a momentary intrusion into the places where people live out vast, invisible lives. Your gums churn absent-mindedly. You remember what it was like to make this trip north for the first time. Then you had to keep swiveling to check your luggage. Today you hug your backpack to your chest and watch through the glass as the train outpaces the river, houses clustered around it like animals drinking from a stream. If you're lucky, you'll be watching at the very minute that someone's front door opens. You'll see the groceries and garbage of the day, engorged or spat out. You wonder what the appropriate number of bathrooms for a middle-class family is. Two? Probably two. You try to imagine how many bathrooms the train has passed already on its journey north. You give up. You keep watching. Train rides are never dull to you. You forget to check your watch. The train sneaks over and around normal life. It shudders and trundles past house after house for no particular reason, except that these places happen to be nestled along its way. When stories are told about places and things, you find yourself seeking out the reason, the essence of the extraordinary that drives people to pass the story on. You need a reason to attend. But the train window defies this. It tells you to look at these things, these empty childhood homes, and wintered trees, and mover trucks, and Jersey Boys billboards, and rusting climbing frames, free of reason. Sometimes the train comes upon open areas, not quite untouched, but anti-touched, the places that most people don't seem to want the places caught between broiling factories or parking lots, little spaces that are bare and ownerless, orphaned, patches of earth with no suited bodies to give them value or press them flat or gloss them over with tar and concrete. You think about collecting unwanted places the way some people collect unwanted dogs. Tame them, feed them, maybe something will grow. You pass a wicked poster with the words Everyone deserves a chance to fly splashed across it in lime green. Lime passes into black as you go through a tunnel. You make up stories about the places you pass. Two lawn chairs, green paint chipped away by the wind and the weight of Sunday afternoon sunbathers. You imagine the old married couple they accommodate. The chairs are settled close enough for the kind of silent, content companionship that comes from marriage of a length that takes a minute to quantify. Companionship of the TV dinner tray variety, vertical and tortuous at times, but with a consistent movement onward to some destination 
that nobody really thinks about. The hairspray of the woman in the seat in front of you has slowly filled the carriage with a heavy, synthetic smell. You pass over stretches of ocean. You wonder how often sea creatures look up through the leagues and leagues of water to the shifting image of the sky. You wonder whether they can see us speeding along above them. Trains, cars, sweating bikers, jogging dog walkers, perhaps roller skaters, the occasional morbid thrum of a helicopter. You remember once seeing a strange thing on the train, a tower of concrete, smooth and near enough to reach out and grasp, sticking out of the mess of houses and industrial infrastructure like a geometric prick. It was a cloud machine. At the top of the column was a chasm blowing out some gas made up of letters and numbers. The gas condensed and swirled into an aerated cream a few meters above the opening, hovering just out of reach of the pillars that created it, and drifting off like a ready-made cloud. It looked as though it could have been snipped out of the pages of a geography textbook and pasted onto the sky. Perfect, petrified. After a while, of course, your eyes drift away from the cloud machine for a second. By the time you look back, you can no longer tell the real clouds from the man-made. You trace your name in oil across the windowpane between you and the false clouds. You remember to check the time. Your two hours are almost up. Our final story in this episode is called After Closing. It was written by Odette Wang and is read by Wei Li with music from Blue Dot Sessions. In it, a young woman travels back from New York to St. Augustine to her parents' home in the Chinese restaurant they run. On her first day back, Evelyn remembered why she had left. She had almost forgotten what Florida rain was like. To have the sky so heavy with clouds, the air so dense and suffocating that the weight of the world seems impossible to carry above ground. In her Uber down the long, straight expressway, she could barely make out the road in front of her, flickering in and out of view through the water on the windshield. When it rained, the grayness of St. Augustine was nothing like the grayness of New York, sleek and impersonal heads down as crowds hurry to the nearest subway stairs. New York rain brought out a sense of confidence in Evelyn, unafraid and proud, just like a local. But in St. Augustine, the rain was lonely and desperate. Even when the clouds parted momentarily, all she could see was emptiness far around her. People hidden in their spread-out suburban homes the flat landscape running until it was gone. It was dark when she finally arrived at Lucky Lee's, a singular building on the side of the expressway. Pulling into the parking lot felt subconscious, but familiar, like muscle memory. Ignoring the bright neon closed sign in the window, Evelyn pushed open the door. Mrs. Lee, a stout woman with short, practical hair, was standing in the doorway hands on her hips. She evidently had been watching the window in anticipation of Evelyn's arrival. 
Totter, you're all wet, she said. Come in, come in, hurry. We were worried about you traveling in the rain. Why didn't you call us on the way? Here, put your suitcase next to the door. Dry your shoes, we saved some food for you. Ah, oh, you must be hungry. Did you eat? Your father is in the back tidying up. Go greet him and then come back. Sit down, eat, take off your coat. But don't get water on the floor, we just mop. Her mother's Chinese was loving and impatient. It sounded different in person than it did over the phone. Evelyn dried her shoes on the mat by the door. When she was younger, she would have rolled her eyes, but instead she hugged her mother and said, It's okay, Mama. I'm okay. Don't worry. Even though her mother was shorter than her by almost a head, feeling her mother's arms wrapped around her own slender body made Evelyn feel like a child again. We always miss you, Mrs. Lee said quietly, taking a deep breath. Still in her mother's embrace, Evelyn looked around the room. She was painfully aware that nothing had changed. Painted walls covered with lotus flowers, pink, white, and green. The dry tea leaves in jars lining the cabinets. The styrofoam takeout containers stacked in haphazard columns behind the counter. The cash register, old-fashioned. The yellow canopied patio with its three potted bamboo plants. Rain streaked the dark windows, and the dining room smelled as it always did, of cooking oil and sesame. When Evelyn finally let go, she noticed tears in her mother's eyes. She didn't want to meet them, so instead she looked at the ground and tried to ignore the guilt churning in her stomach. Eat up, her mother said before grabbing the mop and going into the kitchen. Evelyn sat down at the table where her mother had placed a bowl of rice, meat, and vegetables, leftovers from the day. Next to it, a plate of cut fruit, arranged in the shape of a flower. Outside, the rain continued to pour, and an unexpected wave of nostalgia washed over her. It was those moments she remembered most, in the deep, dark quiet that rested over the dining room after closing, alone with 28 empty tables and chairs. On Evelyn's third day back, it stopped raining. It was half an hour after closing, and Evelyn was helping her mother stack the dishes, one by one, in the dishwasher. When the restaurant had first opened 27 years ago, Mrs. Lee was adamant about not using a dishwasher. But quickly she learned that it was impossible to run a restaurant without one. They had spent the morning packing most of the clean dishes away into boxes. Already, some of the restaurant's fixtures were gone. Evelyn had helped Mr. Lee upload a photo of the large fish tank in the dining area to Craigslist, and someone had already come to pick it up. The small back window was open to serve as a vent, and Evelyn could smell the wet grass outside. In New York, she never smelled grass, only gasoline, smoke, and sewage. It kept her moving through the streets. Here, everything felt on permanent standstill. Go to school, work at the restaurants, eat, sleep, go to the beach. There was movement, but no sense of time. Mama, you've already worked all day, Evelyn said. 
Go, take a break, I'll do the rest. Her mother laughed, and her hands kept working. No, don't be silly, she said. I do this every day. What else am I going to do? What are you going to do once you don't have this anymore? Evelyn asked. They worked in silence, listening to the running water and the clanging of the dishes. You don't have to worry about that, her mother said finally. But why don't you pick up the phone when we call you? You're always so busy. Too busy for your parents? Thirteen years ago, Mr. Lee had asked Evelyn to paint the restaurants. It surprised her because he was a simple man and Evelyn had never thought he had any interest in art. Some chefs found beauty and purpose in their food. But in truth, Evelyn saw her parents more as cooks rather than chefs. The food they made was not even theirs. Chinese food catered to an American palate. The only time Evelyn saw them as chefs was on Chinese New Year. They closed the restaurants and made art in the kitchen at home. Noodle soup and pork and chive dumplings and braised pork belly and whole fish with head and tail for good fortune. All the things that would never sell in a white working class Florida. Evelyn loved art. Her parents loved to hang her art up on the walls of their home or the restaurants, no matter how much she protested. As a kid, she drew for fun, but in high school, she began to dedicate real time to painting, finding inspiration in imaginary landscapes or the internet. In Florida, public art was the neon tube logo of a bar in the city's downtown. But in New York, when she had a rare break from work, she could drink her fill of its museums and galleries, and still there were countless more. She fell in love with the tactility of paint on a canvas, how it could be so moody like Rembrandt, so expressive like Van Gogh, so sublime like Rothko, so feminine like O'Keeffe. Where else in the world could she see so many masterpieces with her own eyes? But before she ever saw a Monet in person, Evelyn set up studio under the artificial lighting of the restaurants after Mr. Lee locked up. She imagined a beautiful expanse of color, vibrant and clear. First, she painted the walls a light sky blue to represent water. When the base layer dried, she painted over it again, then began to stencil on images of pink lotus flowers, frogs leaping between them. She painted grass and koi fish swimming in the crystalline pond, reveling in the way her brush glided over the smooth wall. Occasionally, headlights from passing cars beamed through the dining room like flash projections, and the lotus flowers glowed bright and big like lanterns. After three nights, her parents came in to see the finished product. Mrs. Lee was ecstatic, wouldn't stop talking about how good it would be for business, alternating between praising Evelyn and scolding her for staying up so late. Mr. Lee, on the other hand, just smiled and nodded. On the fourth day, they closed early when it was still light out. Mr. Lee was out in the parking lot smoking. Business had been slow that day, but mostly it was because there was too much left to do. On their last call two weeks ago, 
Evelyn had told her mother to begin throwing things out. For example, the red and gold paper scrolls hanging along the counter and in the windows, the Chinese fortune decor that was now yellowed and faded. Her mother had agreed during the call, but clearly she had either forgotten or changed her mind. Now, Evelyn teetered on the stepladder, delicately taking down each red lantern from the roof, while Mrs. Lee held tightly onto the rungs. Next was the large purple NYU pennants that hung on the wall near the kitchen. It had come in the mail with Evelyn's admittance packet, and she had given it to her parents. At first, they had been reluctant for her to go so far. Why do you need to go to New York? What's the difference? they had said. Evelyn had sensed that they might have been hurt that she didn't want to stay, so she focused her arguments around the financial aid she had gotten and the job opportunities in the city after graduation. On the day of her departure, her mother sobbed. Evelyn thought it was too dramatic, acting like she was never going to see her daughter again. She was excited for the bigger things that awaited her in New York, where she could dream further than she ever did in Lucky Lee's. She carefully removed it from the wall, coughing at the dust cloud that came with it, and handed it to her mother. The last day, when Evelyn came into the dining area with the mop and bucket, after finishing packing up the kitchen, the room looked unrecognizable. Mr. and Mrs. Lee were standing by the window. The tables and chairs were gone, and the room was empty. The tiled floor was covered with plastic wrap, and there was painter's tape on the edges of the doors and windows. Beside them, there were three big buckets of white paint. They turned around to look at her. Mrs. Lee looked apologetic. Evelyn had completely forgotten about the walls. Let me, she said, taking a roller and tying up her hair into a ponytail. Compared to the humid air coming in through the open windows, the paint bucket felt cool when she dipped her roller into it. The painted frogs looked at Evelyn with their big eyes. Wait, wait a minute, Mrs. Lee said. Paint was already dripping from the tip of the roller, forming a smooth pool on the dark floor, yellowed by the overhead lighting. I need a picture. She pulled out her phone quickly and snapped some photos. The camera shutter sound audible in the quiet. Then she put her phone away in her back pocket. Okay, Evelyn, you can paint now. Three hours later, Mr. Lee had gone outside to smoke again. Mrs. Lee let go of the stepladder and Evelyn came down. Somehow, with the empty walls, the dining room felt smaller and foreign. It was as if all of her memories of her childhood were erased, buried deeper and deeper under each layer of white paint. All it was now was a singular building on the side of the expressway, with no trace of her parents' 26 year of toil. And so, besides the regulars, the news went quite unheard. A soft, shuddering, quiet in the middle of the night when the roaring of the cars on the highway dimmed, and the floors were all scrubbed and the wall paint dried white. Mr. Lee switched off the neon sign for the last time. In the dark window, it was almost invisible. 
Evelyn helped her mother load the minivan with the remaining items. Inside, the building was now white and clean, empty of everything that was theirs, ready to house something new. It seemed as though overnight, Lucky Lee's had disappeared. The next day on the plane, Evelyn watched the flat, unmoving expanse of Florida out the small window. The plane began to taxi. New York was waiting for her. During the captain's announcement, her phone buzzed once, then again, then again. The passenger next to her, an elderly lady with red lipstick, gave Evelyn a disapproving look. She moved to put her phone on airplane mode and glanced at the messages. They read, Hi, are you on plane? Call us when you are on plane. We miss you. Love always. There was also a photo. It was of the walls. Blue, green, pink, and white. Those were colors she had dreamed up. Nowhere to be found in the swamps of her hometown. Frogs leaping between the lianhua, the lotus flowers. Koi fish that had found a home in the ponds, shaped by the lotus's large fan-like leaves. The windows were open, and outside it was dark. In the middle of the empty room, Evelyn and her father sat, each with a roller in hand, white paint pooling on the floor, looking at her mother's thumb in the corner, the lightest filter of flesh that tinged each of her memories. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Attune. This season was produced by Christine Yang, Slaveya Zaharieva, Karia Tuketa, and Amelia Fernandez, as well as Sydney Bryant, Sophia Lee, and Eileen Peng. I'm Christine, your host for today. This episode features original music by Michael Gantz and Sharon Ahn, as well as additional scoring with music from Blue Dot Sessions. It was sound engineered by Karia Tuketa, Eileen Peng, and Amelia Fernandez. Our intro and outro theme is written by Sharon Ahn. Special thanks to Allison Park, our podcast editor at the YDN, without whom this project would not have been possible. Join us again next time for two audio dramas about the point of living and poker. From all of us at Attune, thanks for listening and have a good day. <laughs>